Welcome to episode 218 of Destination Linux. Whether you're brand new to open source or a guru of sudo, this is the podcast for you. My name is Michael, and with me today are the associate producers of the Linux Snyder Cut, Jill, Noah, and Ryan. <laughs> Guess who wrote that? Yeah. <laughs> This week, we have a special guest joining us for to discuss GNOME 40. That's right, we're going to be having an interview with Executive Director of GNOME, Neil McGovern, about the upcoming, upcoming GNOME 40 release. We're also going to be discussing a new Linux-based tablet that is entering the market, and then we'll let you know about what you can expect to see in the upcoming Fedora 34 release. Plus, of course, we have our tips, tricks, and software picks. All this coming up right now on Destination Linux. In our discourse forums, there was a question by Blue Hat Wearing Penguin. The question, perfect for our resident website developer, marketer, CEO, also part-time editor, and scene switcher, Michael Tonell. The question is, is SEO important to content creators? Well, I mean, yes, uh, it, it is. But just stop for a second. You re- is this real? Did somebody really write this in? They really did. They really did. And they want to know. First, let's start. We're take not everybody's into show. this. What is SEO, Michael? What What is it, and why do should people care about it? Well, mm-hmm. that's S- a better way to say that. Yeah, a- SEO is ba- it means search engine optimization, and it's basically a way to uh, optimize the content of your uh, whatever kind of content you write, whether it's audio, video, or t- a website or blog post or something like that. It, it basically it's optimization for making the appealing to a search engine to track it and index it and higher rank it. That's that's pretty much what SEO is. It applies to all sorts of stuff, but it is mostly most common with website management and website promotion and that sort of stuff. So the answer to the question of, you know, is SEO important to content creators? Yes, it can. It totally is. It just depends on like what type of uh, content you're creating. So in terms of video, it's less so because the content of the video is not going to be scanned the, it's also the same thing with images. So mostly it's text-driven anyway. So regardless of where you put it on, it, it is important to have SEO for that. Let me ask this question a slightly different way. As, as I'm kind of hearing you talk about this and I'm trying to get behind the eyes of the person that, that, that asked this question, may, maybe the question that we should be asking you, Michael, is how do you recommend people promote and experience growth on the internet. I mean, anybody can Google what SEO is, right? So, but where your expertise is, is you help connect businesses to their audience or to their intended audience, their intended recipients of that message. How, what's the best way to do that? So that's an interesting question that has no answer. So it's a fun, it's a fun situation because when you get into SEO, you realize this seems like a simple process. And then after about a month you start seeing how it works and then you check to see if the things that you're doing are working and you realize it's not, you're not getting information. So you don't have enough information yet. So it takes about three months to get that information. And then by that time, the stuff you have learned has changed. So it become irrelevant. Yeah. And, and, and often in some cases, if like every three months, the uh, how SEO is optimized changes significantly. And every year it's almost completely different. So in terms of, what you have in order to do SEO properly, you have to pay attention to it all the time. So it's this weird thing where SEO is a very popular term that is used by all sorts of people in term and even you know social media stuff is involved in it. There's uh, regular marketing in terms of ad ad re- revenue and that sort of stuff. All these things are involved, and they all change so much that being an SEO expert is 
pretty much a full-time job. And mm. typically, it's also impossible because an SEO expert implies that you know exactly what to do. And like the, all the search engines only give you about like 50% of the information that you need. So mm. there is no way to know exactly what you need to do. So the answer to that is what's the best way to do SEO? Uh, never stop doing it and learning it. So... Well, yeah, because I see a lot of sites that have no SEO. And what happens is some completely irrelevant topic or answer from a site that has SEO, just basic SEO, right? Keyword searches, those type of things mm -hmm. is getting ranked above that. So when I think about how do we pull this back into the Linux world, there's a lot of developers and things out there that create their own websites and stuff, put static sites up. Mm -hmm. But is there a recommendation just for a basic SEO keywords in the back end metadata code or something so that they sure. get some search engine optimization. I mean, the, prob the problem with SEO is that there's so many different individual pieces that you have to align. So like there's metadata for the website, there's metadata for each page, there's images as you want to have connected to stuff, there's keywords, there's the, the content of the actual uh, blog post or the content of the website for the project. All these things have to be kind of aligned perfectly to get the best optimized uh, results. Uh, so the thing is, there's you could go to the DLN forum and ask a question on this thread about specifics, and I'll help you there. So that's that's one of the best mm -hmm. ways to answer it because the problem is is that it's such a broad question that has such a broad answer <laughs> that trying to to uh, piece it down inside of this uh, this segment is very difficult to do. And I would say. <laughs> That And additionally, you could also hire companies and people who do this sort of thing, uh, such as myself, to do it for you. And that is another option as well. So, you know, there's many ways to do it. But the problem is there's there's not a quick single process silver to do. bullet mm -hmm. for this, yeah. right? Unfortunately, it's very important. It is very important. And it's also very, uh, I guess, tedious is a good way to say it because it just never yeah. ends. I know using, you know, hashtags and tags can help, but there was a period where the search engines weren't looking for those, so it didn't yeah. help. <laughs> yeah. They change. You get punished sometimes, right? Yeah. For doing certain things with SEO. I so, can tell you what not yeah. to do. Do not do keyword <laughs> stuffing, which is the concept of taking stuff that is just uh, slamming an entire page of just keywords to get it ranked. Uh, you will be yeah. punished for that. <laughs> Guaranteed don't do that. Interesting. And we love hearing from our worldwide community. What you, you want to, we want you to do is get your official deal Ellen mug, fill it with some bubbly or some coffee, sit down on the nearest stool and send us an email to comments at destinationlinux.org. And if you want to join in on the community discussions, then join the DLN community discourse forum by going to dlnforum.com. This episode of Destination Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean with their new app platform. DigitalOcean's app platform service is the solution to build modern cloud native apps. DigitalOcean's app platform has support for Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby, and static sites. What does all that mean? Well, simply you point your GitHub repository and let the app platform do the heavy lifting. Handle all the infrastructure, app updates, runtime dependencies, all of that stuff. It's all happens with just pushing your code to production with just a few clicks. Secure apps 
automatically. They create, manage, and renew your SSL certificates and protect your apps from denial, distributed denial of service attacks. Uh, run code with little or no, with little to no customization. App Platform uses open cloud native standards that automatically analyzes your code, creates containers, and runs them on Kubernetes clusters. As a listener of the Destination Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free. Better for free because DigitalOcean is giving you that $100 credit when you go to do.co slash DLN. Again, do.co slash DLN to get started with that free $100 credit on DigitalOcean's new app platform. And again, a huge thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this week of Destination Linux. Joining us today is Gnome's Executive Director, Neil McGovern. We interviewed Neil back in episode 64. If you want to learn more about Neil and his journey into Linux, check out episode 64 of Destination Linux. And But today we're going to have Neil coming on the show to talk about Gnome 40. And we're very excited to discuss the changes that are coming up in the next release of Gnome. Uh, Neil, welcome to the show. It's fantastic to be here. Glad to be back again. It's been awesome. a while. <laughs> it has been a while. We need, to, we need to make sure that doesn't happen again next time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So first of all, let's talk about the GNOME 40 that's coming out. There's a lot of exciting changes that are happening uh, this next release. But we have to start with, of course, the biggest change that everyone's talking about, and that is the activities overview changing from vertical to a horizontal workflow. So tell us about this change. What, where, where, where did it come about, and uh, what benefits will the users have with this new workflow? Yeah, sure. So um, kind of the motivations behind this is that the, the overview hasn't really received much attention the way sort of design updates since its introduction in 2011, so 10 years or so, I want to say. Um, and other aspects of desktops evolved, so notifications like unlock and logging screen, to name a few. But the overview hadn't really seen much in the way of, of improvements. So it needed a refresh, and there was a number of limitations in its design that kind of become apparent over the years, and so kind of wanted to resolve that. So that's things like the blank bootstrap, the lack of touchpad gestures, uh, app browsing experience was subpar, and the sort of ambiguous natures of some elements, so especially the workspace um, switcher. So we wanted to give the OVU a, a refresh and address some of those issues while keeping the sort of basic design and essential features kind of intact. Um, so these new designs have been with us for some time. Um, and the original conversations had gone back to about 2017, I think. And so as that had taken shape, um, we commissioned and ran a quite a large scale and very broad set of user research to try and work out what do we need to do. So we had the old version, potential new version, and endless. We used that as a desktop as well. Um, so we did a load of interviews, surveys, user testings, diary studies to to try, and that also kind of really fed into the the design work and making sure that that this new design is attractive for both like new and existing users. Um, so I mean, through some of that, we found that, for example, most people who use GNOME just use a single workspace um, because they don't really know that multiple workspaces exist mm -hmm. and it's it's not as familiar to to people and and they just can't find this and and, and so we wanted to kind of, one of the ways of making sure we have this film strip idea and actually make it um, something that feels a lot more natural to people um, meant we had to change the orientation um, as an interesting anecdote back to where gnome one had it uh, which was interesting horizontal yeah no one used horizontal workspaces and then yeah. when it got moved in gnome 2 uh 
oh, sorry, it, it was horizontal in GNOME 2 by default. And then when it moved to horizontal in GNOME 3, there was an absolute uproar because it's suddenly gone vertical from being horizontal. So mm -hmm. now, we, now we look like we're moving back again. <laughs> so what has been the feedback? I, I know this can be a difficult one because Linux community is very spirited. Um, yep. What has been the feedback so far overall, though? Mm -hmm. um, so initially, there was a quite a lot of worry, I think, from people um, mm -hmm. about this change and how it could change their their workflows. Um, um, but as we've evolved it, we, we've made some tweaks, which was always going to happen along the way. Um, and as people have started using it, I think it's been really positive. Um, to, people have basically found it's it's been fairly straightforward to use and and they, it works pretty well. Um, obviously, among the distributions, uh, Fedora are adopting it straight away. Uh, right. Ubuntu uh, are keeping it back for release, which is absolutely fine as well. Um, so it's, yeah, we, I think we are seeing a, once people have started to use it, um, then I think people work out that it's either not that big a deal or something they actually really like and get on with. Yeah, I was playing with it in the uh, beta, and I can tell you that I, it kind of was like a natural change. At first, I was like, oh, that's different. And then I went about my day, and it was pretty much uneventful. It looks good. It looks really, really good. The only small quirk, I don't even know if it's a quirk because it could have been intentional, and it's something really easy to go in uh, and obviously work around, is that you have to have another application open before the other virtual desktops become available to drag stuff to? Is that intentional so that obviously, you know, when you're trying to use multiple workspaces, you've, you've got to kind of move something first to one of the workspaces? Could have been, like I said, either an intentional thing or something I ran into in the early beta that's being looked at. Sort of. So I think um, it kind of mirrors the way it works at the moment by having those dynamic workspaces. Um, I can't remember exact i haven't come across that exactly but there hasn't been too many changes around there um, gotcha. so i think he's I mean, referring to the fact that the uh, overview is now open by default when you first boot into gnome so it kind of instead of having like mm -hmm. where it used to be where you'd have to activate the overview before it shows up now when you first use it it kind of shows you like the whole overview with the dash at the bottom and yep. if you you can see on the right side that there is another uh, workspace, exactly. yeah. but you can't actually touch it unless something's open. Right, got you. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, to be honest, I'm gonna have no, to have a look fair. at it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I figured have to have it could it. either I mean, been designed that way, because obviously you need something open if you're going to have it. But some I'm used to, because I deal with a lot of these different workspaces, and I know that's not a usual workflow, being able to go to them regardless if anything's open. So it was just one of those things that that I noticed. But overall, like I said, it was a good two minutes maybe before I had completely adapted my workflow to it. So it was not a big oh, yeah. change. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and I mean, I'm expecting that further work will continue to this. I mean, this is essentially it's six months worth of work. Um, so things will continue to evolve and we'll continue to do stuff. Absolutely. Um, and uh, opening up to that initial, um, the initial dash as well is something that was quite deliberate as People were getting very confused as to, excellent, my computer's open. Now, now what? what do I do? <laughs> yeah. And it's just like, was like okay, there's yeah. nothing here. <laughs> am, I, am I waiting for it to finish loading or or what's going on? Right. And basically, so so that was causing confusion. So that's kind of the reason why we've looked at, at, uh, at moving towards basically just showing the dash first. 
Yeah, that makes sense. I, I think that, that especially when I when it opened that way, I did I wasn't expecting it to be set that way, and then I thought, oh, of course, because otherwise you wouldn't have an indication of like what exactly to do. Uh, and I think that the 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 new horizontal style is pretty interesting in terms of like the the workflow. I prefer the horizontal switching between workspaces anyway, so this works great for me. Uh, it's it is uh, it's something that I saw that people were having an issue with because they they were worried that the overview would change the way that the the applications are displayed inside the overview because they were saying that i think one of the complaints was that it would be making the, the windows too small but it in my experience it does the exact opposite because yeah. it's based on the width of it and the height because the actual applications don't are not stuck inside of the workspace they kind of overhang a little bit and do like this uh you know this expose sort of effect and it it looks quite nice and it seems to be you know, and in the a different parallel in terms of what they expected it to be, it's kind of better in terms of making more room for those applications. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and lots of this has been driven by basically that user testing, um, which was probably the biggest we've had in probably a good 10, 15 years or that so. That I now. love hearing. Oh, nice. That's awesome. It's wonderful. So. And, you know, one thing that we've pointed out here on Destination Linux is, or is, is the flow is very similar to one of our other favorite OSs, WebOS. Oh, yeah. That's true. <laughs> it definitely yeah. Yeah, has. Did a whole it had that, that feel. Yeah. I, fe yeah. I felt like I want to take my finger and go like swipe. <laughs> as soon as I saw it, it immediately gave me, like, it reminded me of WebOS. And I was like, this is I, I can't wait to yes. play with this because it, it reminds me so much of it. <laughs> and as a as a an admitted fanboy of WebOS, I was very happy to see that the like, mobile version yeah. we're talking about. I, well, I'm just I, looking around yes. to see if I've still got my uh, my Palm phone here. Oh, you're a Palm person too. <laughs> I've still oh, got man. that. We I knew have I loved you. Devices. Neil. I knew it. <laughs> All right, nice. So Neil, I'm I'm always interested in learning a little bit more about the development process. You know, you talk about some of this user testing that came forward. So obviously you get a tremendous amount of feedback. You can't act on all of it. And certainly you wouldn't want to, it's going to be split down the middle. So how do you begin to prioritize which features uh, are, are being planned, which ones to, to come out in the next release, which ones to bake? How does that process work a little bit? Uh, so this one's kind of interesting actually, because um, GNOME is not developed by a sort of central company or uh, uh, unlike a lot of the internet will tell you, it's not a Red Hat project. It really isn't. Uh, right. Where a <laughs> it is highly believed, <laughs> but it is not accurate. <laughs> yeah, um, I've got the stats to show it isn't. It really isn't. We we know who contributes, and it's it's a massive um, distributed effort. And traditionally, um, because it's quite an old project, it still has the concept of maintainers working on individual things themselves. So um, it's quite hard to actually get that sort of high-level uh, roadmap overview. Um, so there isn't really a central decision maker saying, all ah, right, well, we're going to do this this time, and then we're not going to work on this until next release. And so because it's quite hard to tell a volunteer that, no, you can't work on that. You have to work on something else because they'll just say no <laughs> and then not do it, right? So, <laughs> so what we do is um, we do listen to um, a lot of users, um, primarily through distributions. So we have our advisory board, which has all the main distributions on there. Um, and we have meetings every six months or so for, well, it used to be a whole day in times when we could actually meet up. But now a good few hours um, every few months, a half a day to actually kind of run through the sort of things that the distributions are 
are having problems with and the feedback from the distributions on we're facing this from our users and these are the sort of things that would mm -hmm. help them. So there's some of that. The other one is basically linked to funding. Um, so for example, at the foundation, uh, we uh, we employ Emmanuel Bassi, for example, to work on GTK. And so sometimes we get funding from people or donations to work on a particular set of um, problems. And then, then that's what basically ends up getting funded. Very nice. Yeah, where there's. Does, where there's, does your funding, uh, if you may, if I don't, if you don't mind me asking, where does the majority of your funding come from? So yes, for our funding mm. is is kind of split into three areas. Uh, one of them is our sort of individual donations. So we have our friends of GNOME, uh, which people regularly donate once a month. I see Jill's got a fantastic friends of GNOME T-shirt mm -hmm. on there. Yes. <laughs> uh, so we we have that. We have fees which come in through our advisory board for. Are for basically the commercial distributions and commercial people who pay to be uh, to be on the advisory board, and then normally through large grants, as most other nonprofits do, it's through uh, large projects and grants that we do, um, and that can be sometimes around GNOME and the desktop itself, uh, but sometimes it's around uh, things that are related to the desktop and free software um, system. So. We're running things like, at the moment, the um, Community Engagement Challenge, which is, uh, we've identified the problem is that people don't know how to contribute to free software and open source software. There's not that sort of body of work out there. So we run, we've been running competitions to, to try and get ideas in, to uh, train people how to, how to contribute to open source software. Um, so that's an example of a sort of a grant that will come in that we'll do work around. And uh, Neil, so moving to GTK4 comes with so many wonderful improvements, including GPU acceleration and improvements to Wayland. What are some of the other advantage of, advantages of moving to GTK4 that, that GNOME will be leveraging in future versions? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, GTK4, it's been a, a huge multi-year development endeavor. It started in late 2016 and, and only just released at the end of end of the year so there's been a, a load of changes come through that um, a lot of it internally as well so not necessarily massively um, user noticeable um, but probably a, a few kind of things that have been happening is we have basically rewritten the accessibility stack nice. that was one of the things i got um emmanuelli to basically concentrate his the last year and a bit of his life on is completely redoing the accessibility stack nice um i mean gnome has always been yeah okay it's been one of the better um desktop environments for accessibility but with the new change of gtk4 um my kind of mantra or the thing i i told uh, manuelli we want is we want every single application that uses gtk should be fully accessible that is awesome that's the whole Wonderful. And Thank you so, so much for that. All that. No <laughs> problems. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. For new stuff coming up. Um, so, Christian Herbert um, created a new GL render for GTK. Nice. Um, so, that was kind of our desire to sort of improve rendering performance on macOS as well, where GL drivers are uh, not quite as forgiving as they can be on the <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah, we've, and that's given us a chance to sort of apply the new things we worked while working on a current one, reorganize the code, and try and make future improvements um, for that. But there's other sort of simple ones, I think, um, which are, to me, really, really cool. But um, 
aren't that major. So things like uh, when you have like a little popover, uh, when you like click on the hamburger menu or something like that, uh, because we've managed to rearrange the things, the little beak, uh, which appears at the top of that, now appears in the right place and you get a nice shadow around it. Ah. Um, but so simple things like that and actually having smooth scrolling with acceleration uh, that nice <laughs> yeah that probably it's works huge. about as good if not better than the way mac os does it um to simple things so i have a um when you have a text editor up and you have a blinking cursor just a very simple thing that fills me full of joy is instead of it just blinking on and off there's a very subtle fade in and fade out at the end of it when it does it yeah. so it's just little uh, things like that that i think we've we're starting those to little paper cuts that now that attention to details what makes it right you don't th- totally. they might not even be things people pick up on unless they're listening to the show of course but they'll notice it in their experience as they're playing with the the desktop which is awesome yeah absolutely one of the announcements that I'm most excited about or I was most excited about hearing was the Extensions Rebooted Initiative. Even in the comments right now, a lot of people very excited about GNOME, but people talking about extensions and the relationship with GNOME 40, with GNOME overall in the extension system. To a lot of people, it's very important. Can you expand on this initiative, how it's going to kind of improve the extension system within GNOME? Yeah, sure. So um, we've recognized for a while that the extension story is not ideal the way it works. Um, there's basically a kind of a disconnect between people writing extensions and the GNOME project. And so this is a sort of collaborative effort to kind of address some of those issues around that, that ecosystem. Um, it's a fairly long running one. So it's not suddenly a, right, we're going to do this and now it's done. It's a, it's a, lo- it's a longer process, but right. it's, so the ultimate goal is to get the extension communities to and extension authors to work with each other and have closer ties to GNOME and GNOME shell developers and kind of to provide that documentation and tools. And so, yeah, certainly we definitely encourage any extension writers to get involved with this and build that better ex- experience. Yeah, it's, it's it's basically trying to sort of tie in use of extensions more into GNOME's infrastructure. So we can do things like build CI pipelines so we know when extensions break when we have a new release and what particular ones break and in which way. And that was also one of the major reasons for producing GNOME OS of this thing in a virtual Mm -hmm. machine is that now people can test extensions before GNOME releases and before it lands in the distros. So people can get an idea of what changes are needed and what updates are needed when when extensions um, come along. To me, this is the most exciting thing. And, and I know this this is a relationship you're building. This is not something yeah. short term that's going to be fixed tomorrow. It's a really about building a relationship as you're explaining it. But if you could say, pick one thing, as I've been a, a fan of GNOME and been using GNOME that I wish would happen, it's this, that the extensions in the GNOME ecosystem really have a closer tie in together. Because it there's so many amazing extensions and there's nothing more frustrating than going up and clicking one and it's like, oh, this is exactly what I need, but it doesn't work because the version I have, it was written for a prior version. It's not updated, that mm-hmm. type of stuff. And it doesn't happen all that often. But when it does, you know, it can be can be frustrating and people get really addicted to the extensions that they, they love and add so much cool functionality that they write in these extensions. Um, I'm curious, how is GNOME helping the developers migrate now their extensions to GNOME 40? What are some of the things that you're doing to, to help? Yeah, sure. So um, I think this is a really good example of uh, 
extension developers get involved with, with this process and, and pulling it along. So if you go to gjs.guide, uh, there's an upgrading um, guide there on how you can port your stuff to work with GNOME 40. Um, and there's also the extension hash extensions on the GNOME IRC channel or matrix as well in the GNOME space or on discourse.gnome.org. Um, there's extension tags that people can use there. And a lot of this is actually, it's being driven by, um, uh, well, on the GNOME side by Sri, who's a longtime GNOME um, contributor, but also on the other side by um, Evan Welsh, who's the developer behind the Just, Perf Just Perfection extension as well. So um, it's we're re and there's a load of really helpful people there who want to help people move along and offer advice on how to port their new stuff to make sure it carries on working with GNOME 4. There was also like a video. I don't know if it was community yep. video or if it, who created so, it, but yeah, it was that, fantastic. That's Evan that's as well. So oh, seven. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. so yeah, he he created videos to kind of show what changes need to be made and and that's it. So I yeah, thought that was brilliant. That and, and Michael, you used to support what is it like thirteen? Yeah, at one point I was maintaining about fourteen of them. Uh, this was a while back. Uh, this was uh twenty thirteen or something like that. And they they were really it was really powerful to see these extensions and some of the extensions people just stopped working on so that's why I started maintaining some of them I didn't I only helped make one of them I just took over the other ones and it was an, the the only thing that I had an issue with was was the it was hard to know if it was going to break but because of the way the version system worked you could you could guarantee it would break to some degree because of the what it, how it was checking so you had to always pay attention to it. And then once you did that piece, you still have to test to make sure it works. And it was kind of difficult to keep up with. That's why when the GNOME OS, uh, that, that testing distro was made, was a very big changing aspect for extension developers because you could actually test stuff prior to having to worry about, like, do you have the latest version of the toolkits and the latest version of the shell setups and stuff like that to make sure that it all works. Uh, so I was happy to see that. So having a testing distro is a big game changer for the extensions. I am curious, like, like I've seen a lot of people worried about extensions not being ported over. A lot of the more straightforward or simple extensions, they should work fine. Uh, nice. It's basically, if if, you, if you're touching the overview, mm -hmm. um, then things may things need testing to make sure they don't break. Um, the other main one is if you have if you're building your own preferences windows that's going to be using GTK4. Um, there's just no way of, of using that GTK3. So there's um, some minor tweaks around that as well. Part of the reason that extensions aren't mainlined is that we don't have people to look after them. Um, there's there's not that many people to, to basically go and run sure. and port these sort of things. It requires people to who are creating extensions to maintain it. Um, yeah. And like with all, I think, open source projects, there's there's just enough enough people who, who are looking at these sort of things. Um, fortunately, from a particular user's point of view, you can install things still locally. So it's definitely worth checking them out if you have something favorite and probably worth trying to engage with the extension authors as well to say, hey, are you moving things? Can I help test for you? Something like that. That sure. probably helps. Is there any kind of mechanism for like one for there's a great question in the chat in the patron chat uh, Bill's wanting to know if there's is there how can someone uh, get, who wants to get started helping out with maintaining extensions how could they get involved in that sort of stuff is there any kind of onboarding mechanism for that Yeah so um, as I mentioned before um, I'll send you these links afterwards but ggs.guide um, has a 
it's basically is the, is a really good thing of of how to basically um look at extensions how to port them there's there's loads of documentations there and nice. yeah as mentioned before there's there's loads of help around on irc or matrix or on our discourse instance for for people who, who want to help out very nice all right, let's move on to something about like the features with the upcoming GNOME 40. I am very excited about a lot of things, but I wanted to know mm -hmm. what is your personal favorite features that are coming out in GNOME 40? So I think like Ryan, I I, I tried the new overview. Um, I do also have multiple monitors side by side. Um, so I know that was a big concern for people. Uh, yeah, within about an hour, I didn't notice that there was any difference from how I'd previously been using it. I use a separate keyboard and mouse, um, but so, well, I say a mouse. I have a um, Logitech Ergo. Uh, nice. Oh, oh, rollerball. Rollerball yeah. wheel. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> use those forever. Um, and so I am now tempted to get an external um, touchpad because the gestures oh. Oh, uh, yes. really nice. <laughs> They're so nice. What would you get oh. for, yeah. an external for an external touchpad if you were going to get one? I have no idea. <laughs> you find the, out, the way, let me know. The, the, way I, the way I buy pointer devices is basically I use the same one for about 10 years. It eventually mm -hmm. dies. I go to Logitech's <laughs> website yep. and I buy their touchball, whatever <laughs> the latest one is. That's what same. I do. Exactly. Um, and it just gets better every time. Yeah, basically. So I have no idea. But yeah, some of the touchpad things with one-to-one -one mappings so your screen is the same size as your touchpad for example mm -hmm. just makes it really really nice to use some of those for moving out in the, into the overview or switching between workspaces makes it really nice so that's probably my favorite one. Oh yeah the yes. touchpad stuff or the, the touchpad stuff is really nice to see like the changes and the gestures people don't really see why they're valuable and then when you first use it you can just do the four finger swipe and then it just switches with inst like it's such a good experience that you kind of like i i agree with the whole go getting your own touchpad just to even use this even mm -hmm. like on a desktop because of how quick it is to to man manipulate the the interface with that so what are some of the next what what is coming next what's down the road uh, after this next batch of you know obviously new road ahead what uh, what can we look forward to uh, coming down the road? Sure. Um, so I think one of the things that we're going to be seeing is, um, or we certainly hope we'll see, is port to is applications porting to GTK4. So they'll get a new interface, um, get potentials for um, GPU acceleration, things like that, um, and basically kind of a refresh of apps. It has it has more flexibility in there as well. There's something called uh, I think constraint based layouts where you can just describe um, things more like the way mobile apps are developed now. So rather than saying this pixel, this pixel, you just go, this element is to the left of that, and then add those constraints and you get a UI out of it. Um, so there, there's, I think, a lot more things around there. Again, we're probably going to see, uh, depending on on if people work on them, we'll see continued things like performance increases um, across the board, um, Carrying on with that, especially as we can uh, with GTK4, we can actually use GPUs a lot more and using zero copy pipelines um, through that. Mm. And then some other things like I think we'll see continued changes to things like the shell and improvements. I mean, this is we've did a lot of user testing for the shell and the overview, but there's a lot more user testing you get when you release it to tens of millions of people and they all start using it. And so the feedback we get for over the next year or two, I think, will continue to sort of 
work on some of those and work on the and work on improvements to those as they come along. Yeah. Well, I was stalking your blog. I mean, reading your blog, and uh, (laughs) it was talking about GNOME loves multi monitor, right? And it was talking specifically because I love multi monitor too. So Mm -hmm. me and GNOME are in the same boat there. We were Mm -hmm. meant for each other. But it talks specifically about a lot of new multi-monitor improvements coming in the future. And because you love this show so much, Neil, tell us what they are. <laughs> I, I wish I can tell you. What we'll do is, uh, what I'd probably suggest is actually, if you have a look at uh, the GNOME Shell GitLab page, uh-huh. uh, there will be various details on there. So Alan Day normally heads up the UX design piece with that. And I mean, all our stuff's developed in the open. Um, awesome. So there's lots of stuff in there. But, but that's going to yeah. be a focus point, And that's pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah. It, it, I mean, I've always used multi-monitors with GNOME. Um, and a lot of the devs do as well. So it's if we see the issues that we have with, with some of those multi-monitors, then, then that's going to be a, a, a thing we need, to, we need to look at. I guess the, the main bit that we've got from, from this new shell design is that it really improves the experience if you have a laptop and a single monitor. And we've tried very hard to make sure it doesn't degrade the experience if you have multi-monitors. Mm. So now uh, we can now focus then a bit more on Okay, so what can we do with multi-monitors and how do we do that? Um, I think we've already had, I think it was the last release, uh, a very simple one where we actually managed to get mixed DP, uh, mixed refresh rate monitors working. Yes, nice. Um, that so, was huge. That, that so that, that was I, I was that. DPI. I eventually bought the same ones because I was sick of dealing with it. But yeah, the, the mixed thing was an issue in the past for sure. Yeah, so, so we've had that. And so... Some of these things come along and they don't really receive too much attention, but they, they I mean, there was a lot of work that had to go. I think oh, we had I to rewrite a whole load of stuff. And we worked well with KDE on that as well. So there's a whole thing coming about mixed refresh rates. Love it. Oh, and I'm looking for uh, gaming imp- improvements on multi-monitor because I game on three monitors and sometimes there is issues in GNOME with that, but, but they've been getting better and better. Yeah. So. And we're hopeful that gaming certainly improves. And that's, I had a call... Awesome. A week ago with mm-hmm. Valve again. Uh, nice. Because I work. I, so I don't know if you. I was involved. I'll rub it in. Um, now we're all jealous. Yeah. Can we get that <laughs> number? Off? Can we get that number? <laughs> okay. So here's the story. So uh, in my previous job, I worked for Calabra, where I ran sort of like the engineering. Oh, team. you did. Oh, okay. Uh, so yeah. me and me and <laughs> made SteamOS happen. And nice. So we did that. Nice. So yes. I, I might have a magic code from Valve, Yay. which gives me access to all Valve-produced games and including future ones. So, yes. So You're yes. a good friend to have. You're yes. a very good... Uh, <laughs> so stuff yeah. Um, so we know that. So yeah, so I had a call with them and uh, Steam Link is now on the um, in FlatHub store. Yeah. Yes, very awesome. Mm-hmm. So, that, that, so yeah, it's really good to see some of these stuff working. Yeah, that's oh, yeah. that was that was oh, one awesome. of the things we talked about in a previous episode. That was uh, it was very cool. If y'all want to learn more about it, check out that previous episode. The the the, the remote play together aspects of the Steam Link is just awesome. I'm I'm just really yeah, happy. It really is. Uh, there's an interesting feature merged in GNOME 40. I wanted to kind of understand some more about uh, a headless native backend for Mutter and the ability to create virtual monitors easily. Can you explain what some of the use cases for this? Because this seemed like a really big deal. But I wanted to kind of understand how are people going to utilize this piece? Yeah, this is a probably a critical feature for people who, who, for instance, want like a desktop instance on their servers or in the cloud and where they want a desktop they can access through VNC or RDP for 
sysadmin related tasks. Um, so that that's really quite a critical one there. So Jonas Adal, I Adal, I can't quite remember exactly how to pronounce it. He he's from been working through with Fedora and upstreaming GNOME, and I know they spent a, a load of time laying the groundwork for this over probably at least a year or so, maybe more. And so it's kind of in the final stages of merging that. And that in particular was kind of one of the four, I know for Fedora was kind of one of their final things that they wanted to do to have the Wayland ramp up and, and sort of roll out to be complete. So yeah, they, they now consider that to be done. And of course there'll be like bug fixes and features implemented, but they're kind of moving on from the um, stage of let's close the gap with X11 to actually we're done now. And now I can actually carry on with Wayland as, and mm. that's going to be the primary thing. Um, so it seems kind of weird to just create a workspace and a monitor that you can't see and you can't connect to. But um, there's a lot of people who actually run GNOME in the cloud and on big servers out there. And so that's kind of really And this allows them. them to see the actual desktop environment, like if yep. you ran it natively as a GUI versus just seeing a headless terminal. Yes, you, absolutely. You can actually interact. That's that's awesome. Yeah, and we're so excited about the upcoming uh, GNOME 40 release on March 24th. Yay! Mm -hmm. And uh, so, Neil, the work is never done as the work on the next release, you know, of course, begins immediately. So for those in the community who want to get involved, what kind of help does GNOME need the most right now? And how can we help you? Sure. So um, as with, with any open source project, there's never enough people um, around <laughs> to, do, to do that. So um, GNOME has, out of the many software um, communities I've, involved, I've been involved with, GNOME really cares about its newcomer experience and really mm -hmm. wants to be accessible and available for people who want to come up and help. So if you're a coder, then there's wiki.gnome.org slash newcomers. That has, we have a whole newcomer program, which has numbers of bugs that are tagged for people. People can come and have a look at things, projects people can work on, mentors that people can come and have a look at. Uh, but other things from documentation writing is, is also quite important for us. So we've had some work on that. But also the, one of the interesting ones is if you speak another language, then actually working on translations is incredibly mm. important for us as well. Um, I know in the before times when we could travel, um, in he went to, um, I was in Indonesia, and there's actually a couple of the native languages which were almost dead, have basically been brought back to life because people have managed to translate um, oh, nice. GNOME oh. into into other languages. And Amazing. so there's a load of stuff out there that that people can get involved with. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if you're excited about GNOME and kind of want to get involved, then absolutely come along to that or to our um, discourse instance and people can point out where to go from there. Nice. Awesome. So, Neil, thank you so much for joining us today. I mean, and also thank you for all the work you've been doing for with GNOME yes. over the years and GNOME 40 in, in particular and uh, helping it come to fruition. We also want to thank you, the thank the entire developer community for GNOME and working on GNOME and making this such an exciting release because I, when I first started playing with GNOME 40, I had a little bit of like a, a hope because I saw the WebOS stuff and I was hoping it was yeah. going to be there and it did and it, 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 it didn't delivered. Yeah, it, it delivered. didn't disappoint whatsoever. <laughs> it was fantastic. So uh, thank you very much for all the work that everybody's doing at the, the GNOME Foundation and we can't wait to have everyone try it out for themselves. And again, thank you for coming to the show, Neil. It's, it's been great. Thanks for having me.
This episode of Destination Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com slash DLN. So Bitwarden is a password manager, and it is a piece of software that will give you peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. Well, how, did, how does it do that exactly? Well, if you're not familiar, there are some people who think that having a single password is a good idea. They're wrong. Don't do that. That is a terrible idea. Have multiple passwords for, actually, you should have a different password for every account on every website that you have. So it's true. Th this is, understandably, that does sound like a lot, but that is where Bitwarden comes in. Because Bitwarden provides tools that allows you to have a, a secured vault to store those passwords in, allows you to automatically generate those passwords, and also to automatically fill in those passwords into login forms so you don't have to do any of that stuff. It's fantastic in so many ways. And in, in addition to that, it also works across multiple multiple types of devices for web browsers, mobile apps, desktop apps, even the command line. All sorts of great uh, options for you in Bitwarden. And I think that you should you should check out the premium service of Bitwarden because you can get the free account, sure, but for less than a dollar per month, you also get one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator for temporary one-time passwords, and also, of course, Priority Customer Service. You get all of this for less than a dollar per month. And in addition to this, Bitwarden is 100% open source. This is why I personally am a huge fan of Bitwarden because the open source philosophy is very important to me and finding something like this to provide a service that critical is just amazing. And in addition to that, they, they don't just stop there, but they could totally just stop there and I'd be happy. But they also bring in third-party security for firms to audit their code to make sure it is as safe as possible. So make the smart move like many of the community have and go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to check it out. And also you'll be able to support Support a company that truly understands open source. So, and essentially, you'll be supporting them and supporting us by supporting them. So, you know, help us, help you, help them. Bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. Thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring Destination Linux. So, in the news this week, I want to cover something that has me very excited. In the interview, this was teased a little bit here. But Fedora 34 is already ramping up to be an amazing release. Fedora's just been killing it lately. It's been amazing 33 by itself because I've been able to install it pretty much on everything, not pretty much, on literally everything. All these new laptops I'm doing for the HP videos I've been working on, Fedora's just been flawless. But 34 has some really unique features. Of course, you're going to get GNOME 40, which we talked about earlier in the show. But how about some haptic touchpad feedback support? built in to Fedora 34. Okay, so that sounds interesting, but I think you're going to have to explain, like for the listeners and also myself, what exactly do you mean having touchpad haptic feedback? I know what haptic feedback is for your phone, but why is it useful for a touchpad to have it? Well, it's really interesting because everybody's going to have kind of a different probably use case for it. But if you go back and watch some of my videos and I'm comparing, for instance, the MacBook Airs and the MacBook Pros to some of the PCs out there, and I usually zoom in. I don't talk about this much, but I show it because those who know it, those that this annoys, this is something where if you push in on most PC laptops on the trackpad, you'll see it actually indents because there's a cut in the frame, right? And then you're pushing down on it and that's clicking a device down below, much like your keyboard works. And that's giving you some of your button control. But if you're on something like a MacBook, there is no movement on that trackpad, but you get the feeling like you're clicking a button because of that haptic feedback that's inside there. So it's not as popular yet on PC laptops, 
but it's very nice because what happens is crumbs and everything else gets stuck in there, hairs, other stuff, and eventually your trackpad can stop working. In this case, if you use something like a haptic touchpad and you don't have the physical click buttons, it really kind of seals that area off entirely. Much higher quality, in my opinion. It's a replacement of physical clicking mechanism. It's more uniform. It's software adjustable to the pressure. So if I want the left click to be higher pressure when I click down, or I want it to be lower pressure to click down on it, I can do that. It's really, if you think about the new gesture system included in GNOME 40, and then add this in on top of it, it's really, really a nice combination Very cool. there. Yeah. I didn't know about the pressure sensitivity stuff. That's really cool. Is that also that it met kind of? I don't know if this would be possible. It sounds like it probably isn't because it's. It's. I, I'm just kind of hopeful. But it sounds like it'd be possible to do a pressure sensitivity of making your touchpad kind of like a Wacom tablet where you could draw on it. That would be awesome. Ooh. That's interesting. You probably great idea, could. Michael. Yeah, I like <laughs> that incorporation there. Also, Fedora 34 pipe wire. I mean, pipe wire. Oh, pipe yes. wire. Finally, <laughs> pipe wire. <laughs> it's here. Yeah, I, oh I, I, I can't wait to play with Pipewire more it's so than coming. I already have, but it's it's so there's so much potential with it so far. Like the ability, like for those who don't know what Pipewire is, let's just kind of break it down a little bit. So if you you might you're probably aware of what Pulse Audio is for your system audio system, but there's also one called Jack, which essentially allows you to uh, do a construction kit type of thing where you can move different inputs and outputs and merge them together and do all kinds of fancy stuff. But it is also a little complicated to set up and by i say when i say a little i mean a lot it is very complicated to set up jack <laughs> so what's cool about pipewire is that you essentially get the benefits of both pulse audio and jack all in one and you don't have to set it up so as soon as they announced that pipewire was coming i was incredibly excited but in addition to the features of the audio pipewire also works with video so you can do similar kinds of concepts with video as well. It's, it's, I'm so excited for this. I can't wait to try out 34. Absolutely. And then better Wayland support on top of that. So mm -hmm. Wayland's getting so good to this point. I know we've, we've given it a little bit of, I don't think we've given it a rough time, but we've been basically rough, saying, hey, a little it's, bit it's, like kind of it's not ready yet. It's not ready, right? It's not ready. Yeah. Um, we kept saying that for a while, but it's getting to the point where I'm installing Fedora, which comes with Wayland by default on different laptops. And it's like a day or two later, eventually I'm like, oh, I'm in Wayland. Let me go back to Xorg. And generally that moments when I'm gaming, right? I go yes, into a game exactly. or something like sure. that. And I'm like, oh, yeah. I'm in Wayland because that <laughs> FPS is way, something's wrong. Um, but it's getting to the point where it's getting so close that you don't even recognize you're in it. And to me, that's the sign that we're finally at the point where we can, we're really close to switching over to this full time. Um, and so you, you heard about, you know, Gnome obviously having better support for Wayland here. You've got better support built in with Fedora, obviously with the GNOME 40 included and then incremental updates for flat packs. Now is another feature that's been added in there. It's just, the whole experience of Fedora 34 is looking as awesome as Fedora 33 was, which was a game changer, in my opinion, of a release. Yeah, that magical unicorn is almost here. Pipewire and Wayland, yay! I know, right? <laughs> All of those things were like, it's just a year from now, it'll be ready, but it's, this is the year, finally. I think mm -hmm. it, it might be the last time we have to say that. I hope so. Yeah, it's so cool. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna put a bet on it, but I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> 
So this is really exciting news. A new Linux-based tablet is being manufactured and planned for release this year called the Jingpad A1. And, at a, at, and it is made by the makers of the Ubuntu 20.04 based Jing OS, which is actually an iOS-inspired Linux tablet OS with touchscreen support that came out as an alpha release the end of January. So this will be one of the very first consumer-level Linux laptops that all of us Linux users have been waiting to get our hands on, definitely. We've been it's asking got, for this. Whether this yes. will be the one, I'm not sure, but we've been asking, we've been for, asking for this high-powered <laughs> Linux-based tablet for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. And it's got a beautiful screen, 11-inch 11, 11 AMOLED, AMOLED 266 PPI screen, 2368 by 1728 physical pixels. Uh, much better than the average 720p. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and it's got, uh, what I was looking forward to is it has a detachable keyboard that's included um, uh, with a trackpad, and it also comes with a stylus. And yeah. uh, gosh, there's so many good things about it. It's got six gigs of RAM, 128 gigs of ROM, eight-core ARM-based CPU, eight-core. Uh, pretty nice. <laughs> Finally, something like a, a little modern. I was yeah. really excited, you know, when you're talking about this, that there are Linux tablet things out there like Pine Tab and stuff, and they're awesome. Yeah. They're amazing. This is not putting them down in any shape or form. But if you want something with more modern technology, you're obviously going to pay for it clearly here and, and Pine serving a very specific community. But this definitely mm -hmm. has modern specs, right? Six gigs yeah. of RAM eight core arm CPU, 16 megapixel back camera, eight megapixel front camera, an 8,000 milliamp hour battery in there, the keyboard, the stylus. Mm -hmm. The thing that caught me, and I know Wendy would be interested in this as well, is the NTSC 109% wide color gamut and true color technology built in. So your yes. color reproduction on this is really good. So for those who are using it like a tablet <laughs> um, or like, yeah, like a tablet and also like a Wacom tablet for editing yeah, photos. Both, and both are called like tablets. That. That's not confusing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah not confusing. <laughs> well. uh, you're going to have better color reproduction on the screen there. But I was playing with Jing OS this week, mm -hmm. uh, at least the beta release that they have. Michael, I think you played with it some. Yes, too. I also play with it. It's a, well, it's let me a start with you, man. What, what were your impressions of this thing? Uh, well, <laughs> the problem with it, the way you can currently, you can't put it on any hardware right now. Like you could put it on a desktop or a laptop, but you can't really experience yeah. the touchpad aspect. That's not true. They have the Surface. They support the Microsoft Surface. Okay, I personally can't try this okay, out. Gotcha. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. They do actually have a, like they have one uh, so far that does work, but I personally haven't tried. I haven't been able to put it on anything because I don't have a Surface Book or Surface Pro or whatever. And this is uh, an interesting experience, though. Like it is. It's very, very reminiscent of iOS. So, like the the when people described it as the iOS like interface, it is very much like mm -hmm. that. Uh, and it also is quite nice. I wish there were some more like customizations because the only thing that I found that when you change the theme to a dark theme, it doesn't change the notification stuff. It doesn't change the like the pullover stuff, like pull down menus and things like that. That would be really nice. But I think it's a uh, it's quite solid for especially for an alpha or beta or whatever exactly it's currently in right now. I'm not sure what it's at like zero point six or something like that. It's very impressive for like that early in the stage. Yeah. Yeah. The fact that they had a had a beta just, you know, at the beginning of the year and now they have a device. Yeah, they're they're moving quickly. 
they, they are moving very quickly here. It's some interesting things under their frequently asked questions. Jing OS is based on Ubuntu 20.04, KDE version 5.75, and Plasma Mobile 5.20. Yeah. They're going to replace the Plasma Mobile to yeah. Jing desktop environment later this year, according to the frequently This was asked like questions. one of the things so that I, I saw the Jing OS, and I was so excited and then immediately undercut. Because I saw, oh, it's based on Plasma Mobile. This is going to be, oh, it's going to be replaced. Okay, I'm not as excited. This, when this, I think this first came across my radar, uh, like episode 217 of Ask Noah, and we, we had talked about it a little bit. And one of the things that concerned me about it then, and, and I just kind of did a brief recap, make sure I'm still kind of on point, is it seems like what is occurring here is you have places like Pine who are genuinely contributing to the mobile development ecosystem. And then what's happening is companies like this are coming along and saying, all right, well, let's take a cheap, let's take a, a Chinese device and then let's start with open source software and then slowly phase it out for our own thing. I, if it was made by some company that had a reputation or had some history in the community, I might be a little more interested right now. I guess I'm kind of skeptical. It seems like it's just benefiting on the back of other people that have made meaningful contributions into the community. And then they've come out and said, here, we'll load it on admittedly better hardware uh, in, 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 a, in a different style. But I'm, I have a hard time really getting off the launching plane for Jing OS, right? So, okay, to be I, clear, I, I want to point out one thing. Prior to the Pine book, you could say the exact same thing about Pine 64. You know, kind like, of, but not really. Again, again, they have been out in the open talking about and doing these things and participating and they're in chats and stuff like this. I went looking like there's there's, you know, there's a GitHub page. And so they have that uh, for for the Jing OS team and they they push, you know, their 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 code there and stuff like that. But I've not had I've not bumped into a lot of them, I guess, uh, from this team. So it's, it'd just be interesting to see who the team is behind this project and and what their intentions and motivations are. And, and I, I think it's right to have like, some reservation in there. There was a couple of things that caused me to pause on this, although I, I agree with Michael that you could say the same thing about any of these companies when they first start out. But definitely, I think the expectation is that they need to get more involved if they want us to really like promote and push this and see where it goes. But there were a couple of things that caught me off guard with them. One was specifically in the frequently asked questions, is JingOS open source? And it says, yes, JingOS will open source step-by-step. Step. We will update GitHub project every half year and JingOS will be free forever. So does that mm. mean that every update in between is masked until that half year point hits and then we get to see what they've put into the code? But how do you know it's going to be every half year? I mean, what if you what if somebody has That's a code break and you need yeah. to, I mean, I just, it just doesn't, it just doesn't, feel to me to be the same kind of open source project that I see in other places that I see with Pine, even back before they were established, even back when it was just the Pine book and it was a, and it was a, it was a crowd funding project. They were still, I felt like there was more openness and transparency. Here's the that other thing that really bugged me, Noah, if I, if I haven't uh, given you more ammunition here, um, it did not let me opt out of its data collection. So the second you install the OS, <laughs> yeah. it has a yeah. big screen and says, hey, uh, we're going to collect uh, this data, but there's no opt out. It's just Well, now we know why GOS data. is free forever, don't we? Yeah. So well, it says that, disagree and agree and disagree. And when you check, uncheck it and click agree, it still doesn't let you do it because it's not checked. And if you click disagree, it just doesn't run. So yeah, now this it, could it, be a bug in their annoying. software. In fairness, oh, in sure, fairness, it could is. be a bug in their software because yeah. this is very much in in beta. 
Um, so it's so hold on. So but, it's March. So June, July, August, September, October. So in November, maybe we can see a fix. I'm trying to be nice. No, I go. Let me let me be a little nice. They, do. they have a six month update schedule. I want to hold them to anything further. Than that. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, the one thing they did claim that I thought was interesting is that they're saying, of course, Linux apps will run on this. We know that, but you can run Android apps in Jingos ARM version starting in their next version that comes out in June. How do you think they're pulling that off, Michael? Any thoughts? Probably like, is this the Ant? Anbox. 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 Yeah. yeah. Anbox. I, we don't. I don't know for sure because I haven't expressed like exactly how they're going to be doing that. But it sounds similar to that because Anbox is kind of the go-to right now, and it's. You could argue that Anbox is in a really early stage as well. It's been around for a few years, but it's not had like a full, uh, you know, a full-on effort to sprint or anything like that to do to make it as big as as big as we want it to be. Like I think that Anbox is a is a potential game changer, but uh, I'm not sure if this is really going to be a part of making that happen. So a cool things here. Let's say they are because I don't want to. This may be a fantastic company, fantastic people, and I invite them to send us an email. We'd have them on the show. We would talk through some of these questions to get some answers on this. But let's assume for a second, good intent, and that they are they are not only, yes, they're using some of this existing software that's out there for touch, but, but they're going to contribute it to it in a good way, and they're going to add to it, and we're going to have a good hardware-based system here. This is something that I want to see. I don't know if this is the one I want. I don't know yet. I would like to talk to them more and understand more we'll about their plans and stuff. We'll have to see what Jing desktop environment looks like later this year. Yeah, later this year when the when the new code releases. But it's cool to see more people looking at this and saying, hey, there could be a market to take some of this stuff with some higher-end tablets. And maybe this won't be the company that finally gets it out there and pushes it full steam. But it's still cool to see this stuff being made out there from other companies. Yes, yes. absolutely. All right, so moving on to something that everyone can agree with, being a YouTuber is amazing, right? <laughs> and in our gaming section... You get to experience what it's like to be a YouTuber. Are you frustrated with us content creators yes. being anywhere as smart as you and the comments that you leave on our videos? Exactly. Finally, somebody understands. Are you sick of getting Cheeto dust all over your keyboard, writing the yeah, core comments, yeah. not getting paid for it? You're like, I, I can paid. do I'm that so person's job so much easier than exactly. that idiot on the screen. There. Yeah. Well, there's a game for you where you can experience getting trolled and being a YouTuber, which is an amazing yes. experience. I can't explain to you how great it is. And it's called YouTuber's Life, and it's available natively on Linux there. Have I sold oh. it well, Michael? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I'm downloading it right they now. Sh they should hire Team you for commercials. Down, <laughs> yeah. So this this was funny. Well, it's, what's funny it's about this. It's $40 to be a YouTuber. <laughs> So this game actually looks kind of interesting. When I first saw this, I thought it was going to be like a joke game, but it does look like they put a lot of effort into this. It's like a sim. It's like yeah. a sim city or like a you sim know, life, sim thing, life sims. thing in terms yeah. of like, but in the YouTuber perspective, it's, it's kind of interesting. So yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't really spend all the time. You know what? I, you know, I never really thought about it. Only Ryan could sell something like this. Never in my <laughs> life have I ever thought I wanted all of the hassle of YouTube without actually getting any of the notoriety <laughs> or following. What is this episode? Is what I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, <laughs> there's nothing like making a simple video about software and how much you enjoy it. And then the comment in there in YouTube saying, hey, I hope you run your car into a tree. Things like this, you just can't experience unless you're a YouTuber. Um, yeah. And it's just a fantastic game concept. You've here. sold me. Yeah. 
Well, it's really cool because there's there's some other games that have done this, but this one is far more detailed and it even has, you can pick uh, what YouTube experience you want to be, you know, a game streamer <laughs> or, or musician. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it goes into details in, in each of the genres, which is, <laughs> and it's well done. It, it is a cool game, but no, I think actual YouTuber would ever want to experience it unless it's all nice there, but it actually said they have trolls. So at least they're preparing people for virtual yes. trolls in there, which is, which is great. <laughs> oh, that's what this, it's a training course. Maybe, yeah. maybe it could be a training <laughs> course. You could become the most successful YouTuber on the planet, create videos, get subscribers, attend events, interact with None of fans. it will mean anything. Yeah. It's all it, pretend, but you can do all the work <laughs> and get all the hardness of doing that. Yeah, it, it does make it look easy, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it does. <laughs> but I do love that it has native Linux support and guaranteed awesome. to give you rose-colored glasses of being a content creator out there <laughs> and hopefully inspires uh, you to go make your own YouTube content because it's amazing. Or library content, for that matter. You know, you can yeah. go out there and make your content on library. So let's let's move on to some some interesting stuff that I wanted to talk about related to the software spotlight of this week. So we we covered GNOME 40 this week with the interview with Neil McGovern, and I wanted to highlight some stuff that is related to GNOME in terms of their extensions, and specifically two extensions I wanted to highlight because I am a, am a fan of these extensions. And first of all, we're going to talk about AutoMove Windows. So AutoMove yes. Windows is a really it, it does. It's not really clear exactly by the name of it, but what it does is that it lets you control the application's loading on particular workspaces and even uh, particular uh, monitors. I'm pretty sure. But the really cool thing is, like, there's sometimes you want to open an application, but you don't want it to open in like where you're currently are. You want it to go to a particular workspace. So, like, say for mm -hmm. example, you want to open the Element client and you want it to go to a workspace you have dedicated to communication. With this extension, you can do that, and it makes it a lot really very smooth and much easier to do rather than having to move it manually. So AutoMove Windows is a great extension to check out. And another great extension is the uh, Quick Close and Overview extension, which is a very cool uh, extension that allows you to, maybe you've experienced this when you open up the overview, you see a little X on the, like, the top right corner. You'd like to close it, but you don't want to have to like navigate to that X. You want to be able to just click it anywhere. <laughs> yeah. So you can use the, this extension will allow you to middle click anywhere on the window and close the application. Yeah, that's like a it. great one. Yeah. I just, like that one. It's a just a it's a nice extra little piece that just kind of gives it a lot easier to use a thing. So yeah, those those extensions check them out. We'll have links in the show notes. Last week, we showed you how you can set up a digital signage using a Raspberry Pi. This week, we're going to show you how to set up your own VPN server. Now, we're going to use WireGuard for this. It's ridiculously simple to get set up on a spare Raspberry Pi. Here's how you do it. Update Raspberry into the latest version. Run this command to get the install for WireGuard. Curl, tack, capital L, HTTPS, full colon, slash, slash, install, dot, PyVPN, dot, iOS. Uh, we'll have the links and these exact commands for you in the show notes. It, go through the interactive prompts and set a static IP, a user, etc. Make sure to write down the port that it assigns you. This is important because you're going to have to forward that port in order to access it from outside of your house. At the end, the prompt will prompt you to reboot. After the reboot, simply type this uh, simply type this command to set up a profile. sudo space pyvpn space add. Uh, this is going to ask you for a profile name. You can name the profile, something that you'll remember. This step generates the config file along with the settings that you'll need for your PC to use this VPN. Now you can get the VPN up and running on your phone. Since that's the easiest, simply type pyvpn 
TAC QR TAC profile name. This will generate a QR code, which that you can then scan the WireGuard app on your Android phone or iOS device, and you're all set. Now you have a WireGuard VPN through a Raspberry Pi running on your phone and a comp file that you can use for your PC. If you'd like to learn more about WireGuard or understand exactly how those steps and what those things are doing behind the scenes, we've got a tutorial video we'll include in the show notes. It walks you through step-by-step -step exactly how to get uh, WireGuard set up from a totally scratch PC, uh, a scratch server, and you can set it up on a Raspberry Pi, a server, even your desktop. Uh, those will That'll be included for you in the show notes as well. All right. So a big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening, however you do it, to Destination Linux. And if you want more DL, you become a patron like all these beautiful faces here behind the scenes. You can't see them, but they're in a big, giant virtual <laughs> stadium. It's massive. It's like 50,000 square foot. 50,000 virtual, virtual yeah. square feet. Pixels. Square, <laughs> virtual square feet. We spared no expense in building the stadium out. You get unedited versions of the show, VIP access to events and live recordings at Destination Linux every Sunday, and you get the patron-only after-show chat, which everyone kind of gets to experience today because today is very special. We have Lugfest happening Yay. right after this show. Everyone's invited. Everyone can join it. In addition, every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern, we're now streaming it live at dlnlive.com. The best part, everyone is invited to watch the recording of Destination Linux each and every week. We can't wait to see you in the chat. And also go right now to dlnstore.com to pick up some swag. We have t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, stickers, and we have a new Whoa, shirt. stop right there, Michael. What? The Hardware Addict <laughs> shirt. I was about to say it, that. But I wanted to make sure you covered it because it looks amazing. You did the, the artwork for this. It yes, looks so you. good. <laughs> hardware addict shirt you gotta pick it up if you haven't yeah. checked out it's hardware addicts, it's, a, it's green it's a fantastic show show <laughs> you need to check it out and also as uh ryan said it's a fantastic shirt thank you very much uh but it's also at dlnstore.com check it out yeah and speaking of hardware addicts we have so many amazing shows here on the destination linux network we have the pseudo show the ask noah show this week in linux the goss the dos <laughs> goss geek <laughs> jill goss geek all right i'm changing my channel that's pretty good. I'm going to be the Goss Geek. The Goss Geek channel, DLN Extend, GameSphere, and of course, Hardware Addicts. So go to destinationlinux.network and subscribe to all these shows to keep those penguins marching and the full Monty of Linux and open source awesome sauce. Everybody have a great week. And remember that the journey itself is just as important as a destination. Everybody have a Goss Geek. And remember yeah, Goss geek. As, as, everybody have a Goss, Goss, Goss geek. Week. <laughs> oh man what a show by the way if there's anybody experiencing issues joining in the lug fest uh michael put a link but i also saw magneto walk through the background of wendy so that it could be causing interference um yes that's probably that's it yeah. that would make sense yeah that's magneto. the interference of the signal I um I've been playing Valheim. I just did like tried to do a couple quick sessions and realized this is a game you have to dedicate a few hours to to really like Yeah, well it's also a smart game to not dedicate a few hours to at the moment because they're gonna do five major updates this year, all of which appear big enough to require total world resets. So Oh my gosh. 